Well, welcome to the One Link Podcast. I am James, and I get to do the intro like Brad normally does. And like Brad always says, how are you, Zach? I'm doing great. Thanks, James. How about you? I'm doing good. Doing good. I'm uh, really excited to hear this interview. We feeling like none of us on staff were like super Hindu experts. We wanted to get some other people on here, and and this is a friend of yours. You suggested him. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you thought he'd be good. Yeah, well, our third term, we shifted over to India and had to start over kind of in a new location. And Josh was already with his family there, had been there for perhaps three or four years, and really had a, a heart for teaching and for developing the maturity of, of the Hindu background believers there. And I also know that his experience of two terms in Zambia, uh, where he worked with leadership and developing leaders there as well. Yeah, I just felt like, as I know, he's now fairly new professor at Cedarville University, that he would be a great resource for us. Excellent. Well, I'm really excited. Today, we're, we're going to visit with him mostly about evangelism and sharing. And so let's jump in and hear what he has to say. Yeah, I'm excited. Me too. So Josh, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got in missions. It kind of started in Jacksonville, Florida, where I grew up and was encouraged to be willing to go anywhere and do anything that God might ask and learn how to be an evangelist. So a lot of great people pouring up into us in our local church there. But as we begin to think about God's calling and where to go, we begin to pray about as Amy and I were married in, in seminary to a place that was open um, to the gospel that was responsive to the gospel. So we ended up going as church planners to Zambia for eight years. It was a pretty rural setting doing church planning and leadership development and had our family there and kind of started our, our ministry after eight years. Just the Lord brought back this desire for South Asia. It had been there on my wife's heart since I'm um, reading Amy Carmichael and kind of teenage years. And there was definitely a push and just an awareness of lostness. And we began to, again, kind of ask that question after being on the mission field for a while, like, Lord, if you would pick us up and move us after learning language and living in a rural African setting, like where might we go? And the Lord just impressed upon our heart. We looked at places like Pakistan and Bangladesh and India and that part of the world. And really, we heard a need there that like the Lord is doing incredible things. Lots of churches are being planted and specifically like for church strengthening, the leadership training, which is some of what I had done in those years in Zambia. So transferred, um, tried to learn a new language, settled in a mega city of 14 million people with a team. And I think kind of immediately grasped with this is an overwhelming task. Uh, learning another language, Hinduism, having kids that are, you know, kind of approaching teenage years. So uh, those were some of the initial leadings of kind of what got us, especially to maybe a Hindu context for the last nine years. So we were 17 years overall overseas and now had been back teaching at Cedarville University in missions and evangelism. This is my fourth year here. Very nice. Do you feel like you're settled back now or do you still have, how often do you have moments of like, can't believe I'm back in America. I wish I was back there. Many times a year, I would say it was a huge first year. I mean, being in first kind of a classroom setting and daily life is different. Kids school setting, what my wife does on a daily basis. But I would also say like an affirmation of this is consistent with God's call to missions of preparing students to go. And for two years with COVID not being able to go, mm. the plan is to take students. So for this um, last summer, for the first time since I've been a professor here, we were able to take about 11 of us and we um, spent about three weeks overseas. So that was a sweet, sweet, confirming, affirming, encouraging time. So as long as that's a normal part of what I do, that'll be great. Excellent. Well, let's jump in a little bit about working with Hindus. You know, our students go to a lot of different countries and one of the religions they're going to run into is is Hinduism. And for at least for me, I don't have much experience with it. I find it very complex and uh, hard to understand. So so give us give us a rundown, get us beginning. Where does a student start? Where do our teams start learning to share with Hindus? Well, I think it's one of the easiest people to talk to in the world about spiritual things because conversations are so easy. But I think it's also really challenging because if you were to ask me like, okay, what are the essential beliefs? What are the requirements? Give me the doctrine because that's so important in scripture that what we believe 
If you were to ask me just a general question, come up with anything you could think of about Hinduism, is this true? I would probably say, yeah, somewhere in some place <laughs> is, which is kind of a blessing and a curse. So Hindus are very accepting. They're very tolerant in a way of at least religious conversations and to dialogue with you would be very friendly. They love to talk about spiritual experiences and God. And kind of the challenge becomes when you realize they believe in 300 million gods. Mm. And kind of this three-tiered system of Vishnu, the preserver of the universe, Brahma, like the creator, and Shiva, the destroyer. So even just mentioning those names, we already get a little bit confused. But in some ways, it's animistic in this sense. Hindus are, quote here, attempt to appease the good and bad spirits by worshiping like at the right times and wearing amulets to guard against disease and evil. So there's an understanding there are powerful forces in the world. There are gods and their spirits and there's ancestors and a bunch of stuff. And Hinduism is largely about rituals and performances and worshiping these gods in such a way that you would appease them, get them on your side. And in many ways, it's almost like the gods are serving you. It's a very different concept of God, and maybe we can talk about that in just a minute, but it's to win the God's favor. There are religious books, you know, the Vedas are there in the Sanskrit texts that are like 1700 years before Christ. Many may have heard of like Brahmins kind of at the highest level of the caste system who would be the top religious teachers. But it's very interesting when a Hindu learns religion, weekly meetings where they're being taught from a text is not normal. Uh, Most of it happens in the home and it's passed down through stories and through rituals and through festivals. So teaching and doctrine is kind of not the key. A lot of them are stories like the Bhagavad Gita, the 700 poem book about Krishna. And what he's doing is he's counseling uh, another friend on how to fulfill his duty or obligations by fighting a war against like family and friends. So it's a story you will see many, even when you talk about this God, which is very interesting, God is not like holy and completely different, but it's kind of like they're created in the image of man. So some of their same vices, whether sexual Mm -hmm. sin or lying or something else, you'll see some of that. So Hindus don't really read their sacred text every day, not necessarily encouraged to. I've only met one Hindu who said they read a holy book every week. So it's not like you're going to have a big debate with what their book says versus what the Bible says. That's not going to be a main thing. Mm-hmm. What kind of stories do they know or like how how much of it? Like it's a 700, you say 700 poems. Like mm-hmm. how, mu- how much of a story do they know? So they're going to be stories that are told through the family, not necessarily studied for detail, but they're stories about each God, like Hanuman is a monkey God. So there's a ritual about him and how he helped another God. There are stories about Kali, a God who destroys a female goddess who destroys demons and wears a garland around her, her neck of that or, or Vishnu. So each one, what's, what's funny, even, um, you know, Ganesh is one God who many might recognize had an elephant head. So I have heard three to four, maybe five different stories of how did this God with a human body have an elephant head? So the veracity and like, is it actually a historic event is not so much asked among Hindus, but more what kind of experience does this give us? What does this maybe teach us about it? So Christianity is a very historic faith and the accounts in the Bible, if they're not true, like the whole thing's rubbish and Hinduism, not so much. If you have a different story than the other one, that's not really so important to the overall, you know, truth of it. And it would more just come up in the family as, you know, the kid does something or something's happening. We say, oh, we do this because Vishnu, whatever, or don't do that. You'll anger, whatever. And Or maybe just an interesting story that doesn't always, you know, I even think that's somewhat of a Christian understanding that now there's application from what mm. the God that now mean I need to do something or live my life in a certain way. That's actually understanding, you know, versus them that would just say, hey, these are interesting stories. These are gods. And all we need to do is not necessarily be like them, but appease them because they're powerful and we want them to bless us. So it's a very much like kind of a health and wealth and what can I get? So Hindu prayers look like, God, I'll give you this. You give me this asking for things, not so much out of personal relationship, 
But out of, I mean, of course, Christians wrongly may pray this way as well, right? To see what we can get from God as if he's um, just the giver of things instead of a relationship. So maybe a little bit on um, some important, maybe Hindu ways of salvation. So kind of the word for that is, is moksha. And Hinduism is understood in America is often looked at like the, the way of knowledge and meditation. We often think philosophically, maybe if we know much about Hinduism, like we're we're trapped in this illusion or maybe even in sufferings and we need to escape. So part of Buddhism and Hinduism both is to escape the cycles of trying to not so much become more of yourself, but to escape by being absolved and like to the universe. So a Hindu idea might be there's this huge ocean, our life is but a drop, and we're going to be absorbed and almost like lose our meaning. You know, even when you think about the end of life and being cremated, like your physical body ceases to exist in that way. And you become one with the universe. It's to escape the cycle. It's very different than a Christian understanding. That's why the burial of our body is actually pretty important. Um, That we don't become less of who we are, but actually we become more of who we were meant to be, that we are unique individuals created in the image of God, meant to glorify him. So that doesn't mean losing consciousness and becoming one with the universe or becoming a God somehow, but actually glorifying God as an individual and as a member of like a people group, a nation, a language. Okay, wow. So that's one way that we often think of like this intellectual style of Hinduism. Here's what it looks like on the ground, though, at least in these major South Asian countries. And that's just the way of devotion. Like you, your family, your your tribe, your people group, maybe your caste, choose a personal God or a couple of gods and you devote yourself to them. So in that way, like if it's working for you, if you're getting wealth, happiness, success, a beautiful wife, the things of this world, a job, like then that God's kind of working for you. So it's very pragmatic in a sense. So to be honest, that's why some people might put Jesus on their shelf, because if Jesus mm-hmm. can heal me. If you can give me some of these things, you can see the attraction of the health and wealth gospel, then I'll add him too. They've not become a Christian. They've actually made Jesus into another Hindu deity that's going to meet their needs and help them achieve their goals. So it's very anthropocentric or man-centered understanding of religion instead of God-centered, cross-centered, like for his glory and worship. So Gandhi says this. If a man reaches the heart of his own religion, he has reached the heart of others too. There is only one God and there are many paths to him. That's a Mahatma Gandhi quote. So Hindus are really the classic pluralist that there are many, many paths. And I have spoken with many a a Hindu who've given me this exact quote after I've shared the gospel, I think pretty clearly, you know, you've tried to draw that Jesus is the only way and they're just smiling and so happy, genuinely so. And they'll say something like, you know, God is one. It's all the same. And they'll say something like Christ and Krishna, they're really all the same which I appreciate the the kindness and listening, but it also makes you want to kind of rip your hair out to say, actually, we didn't really get the point. So part of that is just not wanting to offend socially and culturally. Mm-hmm. And part of it is definitely a belief that what you're saying is not all that different than me. You just call them by a different name, but it's really, really same, same as they might say. Mm-hmm. So where, <laughs> so how do you, how do you share with them then? Like that, it seems how do you how do you break through this uh, with this idea that there is an exclusive God and that he is different? I have a silver bullet. You know that I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I have looked for one. I have talked to so many Hindu um, background friends, so people who are believers and talk with them like, what was the scripture? What was the story? What was it that caused you to realize that all these other gods are not actually truly gods are not powerful and Um, There is no consensus answer besides it's the spirit of God opening blind eyes, using the consistent proclamation of truth and the gospel unashamedly and calling them to decision. I know very few Hindus, and I'm not saying it can't happen or it hasn't happened, and I've led a few to the Lord this way. There are a few that kind of hear the gospel the first time and have their eyes open in that way. And they're just ready. Many, many of them, it's a long process. And it's also, there are many other things that are on their mind when they're here, the gospel, maybe we'll get that to that in just a minute. So just consistent gospel proclamation and remembering Romans 1 16, 
that it is the power of God into salvation for those who believe, and that it seems impossible. I'll be honest, when I lived in a city of over 10 million, and knowing that almost everyone there is an unbeliever, and like, how is the gospel breaking through? It seems overwhelming. And then you meet one, and many, and you find people who heard the gospel, believe the gospel, their lives are changed, and it's like, there's this point when God opens their heart to see that and they believe that and they turn from those idols. I, I wish there was magic. So um, there's a couple other things that we'll share as we go along with some points, but maybe that's a starter. Maybe we'll talk about how Hindus pray. Sounds great. So when Hindus pray, it's very different from how Christians pray. And that's going to be the first point I would I would share with people is to pray with them because when Hindus pray, it's often giving gifts. So every morning in a Hindu home, there will be a corner of their home that are devoted to idols. So they will probably have multiple ones. It might be pictures of ancestors. It might be some guru or religious teacher. So they'll probably light incense every morning. They will probably have some holy water that they'll sprinkle around. They'll probably have fresh flowers that they'll put out. Often they ring a bell, they blow a conch shell, and they say prayers when they pass by in the morning, probably short. Interestingly, normally it's the, the female, either the grandmother or the mother who would do these. Maybe not everyone would participate together. There's not really any scripture to read, but just an act of devotion and gifts, sometimes touching food to the mouth of the deity. When they go to temples, that's very ritualistic and walking around the deity. So wherever the idol is kind of walking around that. And, and then there's just holy places that physically going to those places like the Ganges river, dipping there and bathing in that there'd be other rituals, like putting the mark on the forehead that you may have seen, um, getting amulets or something they could wear on their body. So like strings around their arm. If you've ever seen Hindus often on their, uh, probably on their, I believe it's their left arm where they would have strings that they would get from the priest, their upper left arm, they would have something that they have gotten from a temple. Brahmins in particular would under their clothing would have like a string that crosses. So there's things that they would wear and kind of do, but often their prayer is like a personal request to receive blessings. So here's what I would encourage you where one way to start is to ask the pray with them and for them in front of them, like let them hear you. Please, anybody who hears this, let me know if you ever ask to pray for a Hindu and they say, no, I do not believe it will ever happen unless they just don't have time, but pray with them in front of them. My wife in particular had an opportunity. We've all prayed for a lot, but I can remember one lady in particular, a neighbor was going to be having surgery, prayed, Amy prayed for her. And at the end, the, the lady was just crying and she was just amazed. Like, how do you talk to God that way? Like, it's so personal. It's so real. It's so intimate. Like you're not just caring for yourself. So hearing us pray and pray for sickness and healing. Mm -hmm. Again, there are many with, honestly, they're only concerned about their physical body, but I think still think that's okay. Pray for their healing and point them to the, to Jesus, like share the gospel. Don't merely pray. Don't merely mm -hmm. pray for their, their physical healing, but point them to that. And then just be unashamed and sharing scripture or maybe even a promise that you're claiming from scripture. What uh, you said earlier, like they, they like having spiritual conversations. What do they typically like want to talk about in, re in regard to that? Yeah, especially if you're curious about their gods or myths or stories, like they would love to tell you about that. They love to tell you about the rituals of your family or about festivals or or a myth, kind of like, I mean, more than a children's story to them, obviously, but to explain the background. So I think it's good to be interested. I would say in general, when you have a conversation religiously, um, it's good to be a learner, but don't put yourself in the constant position of being merely a learner. They may think you want to convert or that you just kind of want to talk. And they will talk and talk probably for days about those things. So you, you want to be more than a learner. You want to be convictional and you may not be asked to share your story. Sometimes we think somebody's going to reciprocate or they're going to kind of ask me what I believe. Maybe, maybe not. You might talk for days without that. So be unashamed and saying, hey, can I share with you what I believe as well? And then you have to be careful. A Hindu will be more than happy to hear your story and their story and feel uncompelled that they actually need to do anything or that the gospel actually makes a claim on their life. So that's where we have to be really clear and, and share the gospel. They do that. So that would be one way. Gotcha. I ask a, a question following up on that, Josh, a lot of 
students here in the States will interact with internationals from uh, uh, South Asia who are Hindu by culture, by name, and yet probably in a lot of ways are very secular-minded or at least not. So there's a bit of a disconnect that maybe they're not very devout in their Hindu faith. Maybe, again, like you said, don't have a lot of knowledge about a lot except consider it cultural. Uh, how would you encourage maybe students here? I think they'll also interact with them overseas as well, but a lot of educated, highly educated people who who maybe there's like this, how do you want to say, disconnect <laughs> between their faith and, and life? No, I think that's a great question, especially those who interact in the States. And even to a certain extent with many in the younger generation, it depends what group they're around. If they're around Westerners or at a college setting, they may downplay some of the myths about their gods or even about some of the things they would do or kind of act like going to the temple is all not all that important. But I promise you that the large majority, when they're back home around mama and grandma and others, they would actively participate in worship and in festivals, rituals around the birth of a child, around the death of their father, around major festivals and other times, like who they would marry even, all those things would be really, really important. So it is very interesting that especially younger people may not be like proselytizing for Hinduism or actively involved on a weekly basis, but really when it gets to the heart of the issue and what they believe, those are still really foundational beliefs um, that affect like their daily decisions, I would say. But they may also be more, more open to talk. You know, so I think having a great way to share the gospel, one way I love to share is, is something called the three circles and just talking about brokenness. Everybody can identify with brokenness and hurt. And when you ask to pray with the Hindus, where, where are they going to share things that are wrong, things that they want, things that are kind of a need in their life? And you can begin to share that way. Like, why is the world broken? Why are you needy? Why is even politics and, and just war in the world and like kind of all these big things? Why are all these issues here? And that can be a great segue. I love to start with brokenness going back maybe to talk about original creation and God's design and how it was good and to ask them the question, like, how did we get here? Why is the world broken? Like, why are so many things wrong? Let them struggle with that. Like, don't get the answer right away. You know, make it a quiz. Be a good professor here. Let the students struggle with it and then point them to what scripture says and obviously solution in Christ. What kind of answers will they typically give when, when you say, like, why is the world broken? They'll often like see the biggest need as education, especially those who are more educated might see that. They may talk about poverty. They may talk about lots of other things besides a spiritual problem. And here's one of the issues. When God has not revealed himself, thinking about their gods, has not revealed himself as holy and other and perfect and eternal, all of those things, when the gods lie and cheat and steal and connive and go behind their wives back and all these things, all of a sudden sin looks kind of very different. Mm. So sin is like these huge things or sin in many ways is not to live according to your caste, not mm. to live out the duty that you have earned because in another life, you acted in a certain way, and now this is your karma. This is what you must do. This is fate. So the best thing you can do is just live out this particular cycle of your life. It's very fatalistic. It's very depressing in a way. Um, you're probably not going to move socially much. You're not going to change caste. Uh, the best thing you can do is just be faithful to the fate and the expectations of society with the hopes of some kind of long-term increase. It's very works-based, very fatalistic in, in a sense. And there's not this different view of sin because it's a different view of God. When God's holiness is decreased and man's kind of abilities is increased, this gap between God and man in Hinduism religion is much less, not much of a problem. Interesting. That's kind of a, just a whole wild, wild different concept than what we have. Yeah. Um, even, even reincarnation, I think from a lot of us, from a Western standpoint, like we, we think of the old Roger Miller song about reincarnation or just this kind of laughable thing that somebody thinks that will happen. 
but for them it's real. Is there, and I mean, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in their shoes, but I can't really, is there any, is there any sense that it's like, well, if I do mess up, I just, I'll be reincarnated or is it like, well, I really want to be reincarnated better next time. Yeah. I don't know if those things capture the, the everyday thoughts of Hindus. In many ways, the fatalism means I'm living very much for the here and now, and I'm going to kind of get the most I can and do while living out my fate, doing the best I can. Mm. And it's very much a concern for like the beauty of your wife, the beauty of your children, personal success. I mean, just it's common to man, right? We're talking mm-hmm. about different religions, but at the heart of man, it's kind of selfish. Mm-hmm. And um uh, um, I would say any man-made religion is that isn't ultimately about God's glory. It's kind of about how can I appease the gods to get what I want? So while there are higher ideals and academic views of kind of Hinduism and philosophical, the common man's religion is pick a God or gods, commit yourself to them, and hope that they help you have a better life at a very basic level. That's the common man Hinduism. And the types of people you're going to see in America, America are those who have been pretty successful. I mean, here they are in the States. They've gotten a visa. They've got education. They've been here for generations. They have seen, they probably feel prideful in a way that maybe they have escaped and they've gotten access to things. And in many ways, Hinduism has worked out for them, even if they have kind of abandoned it. They have been blessed and showed been showed some, some favor. The third thing here may be a tactic for sharing. If one is praying with them, another is maybe talking about like brokenness would be to share stories. That's one thing that they enjoy. I would say most people around the world. Um, I know when I'm in class and I start to share a story about Africa days or, or South Asia days, students kind of perk up and all of a sudden they wake up from my lecture in PowerPoint <laughs> um, here. And I would say asking permission to share some stories from scripture, whether it's about creation or about Jesus, telling your personal story um, and explaining. So theology is taught in homes and sometimes at festivals through rituals and um, maybe even songs or dance or these things, but stories are normal. So asking permission and being bold, most won't mind having a conversation. Most will politely listen. And I would just say, obviously, you have to emphasize the person and work of Jesus. That's what it comes down to. Who is Jesus? Is he who he said he was? Was the cross really necessary? I mean, we know that. But First Corinthians 15 and just the centrality of the death, the burial, and the resurrection and pointing them to Jesus would, would be a key. Mm-hmm. Are there any other, like pointing to Jesus as a key, are there other stories in the Bible that like really, I mean, like really resonate with them? Like I had a friend that worked with Maasai in Kenya a little bit, and I guess they don't eat the the hip muscle or something. And so, you know, the story about when God touches Jacob's hip, like that one like resonates with them because there's something holy there, kind of this random thing. But are there stories that that resonate more with Hindus? Yeah, I think a lot of those would. Um Maybe from the Old Testament, the arranged marriages might be of interest to some, but I would say any story of Jesus, any story that talks about how Jesus healed people, especially, I mean, they are really, there's so much suffering all over the world, but in South Asia with huge populations and suffering and people being needy and so many people that I know and just a common story of going to the hospital. I mean, many people get the help they need, but many don't. They're just suffering. So the stories of healing, I think, intrigue people. Um, they are used to having like gurus as well, like teachers and leaders who would who would lead people so that they might think of him wrongly as merely a teacher. But I think the good teachings of Jesus would be of interest to them. So again, we've got to be clear in what the gospel says and getting them to see that Jesus is God, talking about the Trinity without helping them think about, you know, some type of three gods and the confusion that that may bring. So any of those Bible stories that are consistently shown over a period of time pointing to who Jesus is. And I think at some point you have to begin to draw the line and be really clear about Jesus is the only way, mm-hmm. you know, you think about John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me or Acts 4, 12. There's no other name 
um, and many other places. So I can remember even going through like the Ten Commandments and there's a the place at the end of that, or there's some places in Isaiah that talk about idols. So maybe that may not be the first place you want to go, or you may not want to tell the first story about Gideon smashing the idols right off the bat, <laughs> but there is time and it may be six months, it may be a year. And I would say this is where Indian nationals or nationals could help us to see um, from a Hindu background, when might be a wise time to really call people to decision and draw a line to help them understand if you're not willing to follow Christ alone, you're actually not a disciple of Christ. So really you don't get what I understand, right? You don't really get that much pushback until you come to exclusivity or by the way, all your, all your gods you worship are idols. That's absolutely right. And even then they may just say, you know, you think that, or will we believe this, or it really is all the same. And um, I think you brought up a good point as we, we had talked earlier about, you know, might you challenge them to say, well, if your son or your daughter were to become a, a believer or to get baptized in particular, would you be okay? And most likely they would not, <laughs> the large majority. Some might be okay with that, but that would maybe be a difference because to be of a certain country nationality, obviously the most Hindus are in India. So to be an Indian in many minds, even though there are definitely Muslims and Buddhists and, and other religions that are there in many ways is to be a Hindu. It's part of your identity. So to turn to another religion is in many ways to deny your country, your nation, your family, your religion. It's a huge deal. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that as a pride. Can you speak a little bit about the uh, the pride of of Indians in their culture, in their because it's a little different than Muslim because Muslims are from many many different backgrounds and cultures, but Hindus are really one culture. Can you speak a little bit to that pride that uh, can be difficult in sharing with them? Yeah, it's one of the things that gives um, India in particular its identity because there are a whole lot of people group. I mean, India in many ways is like the European Union. I mean, um, the state of West Bengal and many of them are like 80 million, 100 million. So we're talking like bigger than Germany for one state um, coming together and a lot of diversity in history. And it is this kind of common belief and kind of a generic religion that's one, but yet very much different that, that gives them that idea. And even um, government right now, and many would say like, this is kind of fundamental to who we are. So there's a lot of suspicion from outsiders, people who would bring money in, foreigners who would be there and kind of why that there's there. So, I mean, our country is dealing with some nationalism and probably protectionism as well in different political spheres. So that would be true of other countries as well, but probably holding on to that Hindu identity is probably like core to, to who they are. Yeah. Can you also answer maybe why they are not seeking to evangelize others to Hinduism? Why are they, if they have such pride, why is it that they are not concerned with that? It doesn't seem. Right. No, that's a good question. It's exclusivism and monotheism and the belief in one creator God that really drives us to, it it really makes sense that everyone must bow and submit before this one. Um, But when you share the gospel with others, I mean, they'll be happy for you. They'll be genuinely excited for you. Like Jesus is the greatest thing. We're so happy, but that's your God. That is um, in, in some mind, like the Western God. I love telling Indians in particular that actually the gospel came to India through the apostle Thomas and the traditions that are there well before it ever came to my country of America. They're kind of blown away um, thinking about some of those things and, and realizing they're in their mind, this is a Western religion, that's yours. Even different parts of, of India and Hindu nations, they will worship certain gods over others and kind of have a preference. So they genuinely have no problem, even with people being a Hindu or other religion, because they're pluralist. So it's what's good for you. Great. We'll not only tolerate it, but we'll actually celebrate it. And probably they'll join in the Christmas celebration and put a cross up during this time and come to a Christmas celebration. No problem. We'll celebrate it all. Mm-hmm. I often heard too, that ours is the oldest and most ancient of all cultures uh, as a great source of pride. I, I assume you've heard that as well. Yes, that definitely gives them some credibility, at least in their own eyes. <laughs> what with that pluralistic view, I feel like recently I've heard more about like Hindu violence. Where does the violence come in? 
out of this, like, uh, you know, you can be this, we can be this. Mm. And I think about maybe like some of the stuff, well, yeah, between maybe Nepal trying to make sure it's like all Hindu or they'd like it to be all Hindu. I think there's violence between Muslims and Hindus, like in India. And correct me where I'm wrong there, but where does the violence come in? No, that's really good. I think where you have religious majorities in large numbers, there is danger no matter where. There is um, in Myanmar or Burma with Buddhists, there's violence there. If you look at Hindu Hindu areas and Christianity has not been immune to this either, I would say. Uh, But in some states in India where there are higher percentages of Muslims, they actually get along. And there's a little bit more tolerance because it's not a large, large majority of one or the other. So where you have majorities, I think that makes a difference. Uh, Another is, I believe, when um, Hindu, Buddhist, even Muslim governments see foreigners come in and being Christians, it's not merely a religious concern, but a concern for the undermining of the government and the politics and the makeup of the people. So it's not merely a, a religious concern, but if these Christians are bringing in finances, in their minds, they don't see in Muslim countries a big difference between the religion and the government. And hmm. Hindu governments and some nationalist movements, they would see those closely tied together either. So they would suspect that as Christians are coming, they would be coming in with some political motivation. So part of it's political power and other things. But there's also, you know, again, the thought that you are coercing people that you are preying on those who are poor, that you are using money and manipulation to cause people to change their religions. This is dangerous. We need to protect that to be of this country's nationality is to be this certain religion, and we're going to protect that. So where missionaries, others are coming in and proselytizing, we have, in their estimation, the respect to allow you to worship freely. So why would you come into our country and proselytize, evangelize, and try to convert people. So theology matters and expectations. So so really, in a lot of ways, it almost sounds like you you share God's stories and you let God work. And if God doesn't work, you planted your seeds and you can do it fairly easily or you can spread broadly, but ultimately like until he works. Yeah. One of the opportunities, and maybe we can talk about this, is how, um, just to share with people here, there are so many South Asians that live in the States, getting jobs, getting visas, coming for education. And one thing I would encourage listeners of yours um, to think about is to invite nationals or international students or people around you into their home. Mm-hmm. For a long time, I we, would, we lived in a big apartment complex. Um, my building itself was 30 stories high. There were seven buildings in my complex and there were six other complexes right around us, huge amounts of people from all over. And everybody who I met wanted to tell me about their aunt, uncle, cousin, or themselves who (laughs) lived in the States. And I would often ask them, were you ever invited into a church? Did you go? And were you invited into somebody's home for a meal? I was embarrassed as an American um, and as a Christian at how few had been. Um, I can remember near the end of my my time in South Asia, I met a young lady. She had been in Texas working in a bank for a couple of years. She had been invited into somebody's home. She had been invited to church. She heard the gospel. She believed the gospel. She was baptized. She was discipled and she was sent back going to a pretty rural place, had a great job. And she was praying for her family and friends and others, and the gospel had transformed her. So whether or not people go back to their original countries or not, there's an amazing opportunity right around most of us within 50 miles of where I live or 25 miles of where you are that many students are coming. So invite people into your home. Like, I promise you, they would come to an Easter service. I promise Mm -hmm. you they would come. They would come to a Christmas service. They would come to your home. They would come and eat a meal with you. So um, maybe this part of the podcast should be titled Invite, Invite, Invite. <laughs> Engage people right here. You don't necessarily have to go overseas, though. We want to encourage people to do that as well. Yeah, I think that's 100% true. A lot of our listeners are college students. And so I feel like there you just, you know, you can find the the place they congregate, meet them, invite them. What if you're out? out of college now, where do you feel like, where are some of the best places to meet Hindu background people and begin forming relationships here if you're not in college? Look up Indian restaurants, ethnic restaurants for any people. You can find Thai people, you can find mm-hmm. Vietnamese 
restaurants. You can find others. There's supermarkets for that. If there's a supermarket for India or Pakistan or African places, I promise you there's around. Ask mm-hmm. around. There are refugee ministries, international settlement, some who are coming as refugees, some who are just coming because of education. Um, college outreach is a great place with like international ministries. There are often ministries for like learning English and otherwise. I knew and heard of cricket at a local park right down the street from my church. So I went out on a Sunday afternoon when I knew they were playing and I met people from Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, lots of South Asians. There's a, I'm actually going in a couple of days on Saturday at a park. There's a South Asian fellowship, some Christians, some not. I promise you when Zach and I lived together um, in a city in South Asia, we knew almost every American who lived in that city, even though there were 14 million people, Mm. we knew who was around. And I promise you, even in a city of a million or half a million, um, African Nigerians will find one another. Zambians will find one another. Pakistanis will find one another. So you just have to find those pockets and keep your eyes open. They are there. They're they're not all that hard to find. Yeah. And when you go to those uh, events, will you just walk up and say hi to people and start chatting or, you know, like when we're overseas, they're just like, oh, white, you know, and and you just stand out and people come meet you. And do you find it that way true when you go to those kind of areas there or do you just walk up and say hi? How do you do that? Oh, if you're in a restaurant, I think it's easier than you think to strike up a conversation, especially if you have an interest in something about Hinduism. You could also go to a Hindu temple, though mm-hmm. inside the temple may not be the best place to share, but you could meet people there. Mm hmm. I just guarantee you, everybody has relationship with somebody international, especially students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this thing on, I and mean, I have it easy because I lived in South Asia for nine years and I can speak some language. So that gives me a little mm-hmm. bit of, of confidence, but I would just say it's easier than you want. Be friendly. If you're friendly with South Asians, it's, it's not a challenge. They're not weird like Americans. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I think sometimes we have to have to drill in our heads. And maybe Americans aren't as weird as we think they are too, but uh, we put those perceptions in our minds. Mm-hmm. So yeah, invite people in their homes. I wonder sometimes if if a college a group of college Christians were to make this commitment, especially with several churches in town, it's basically like no international student will come here and go to this college, you know, mm-hmm. without being invited into our ministry, to our free lunch, into our dorms, back to go home with me. Like, what would that do for the gospel? Like Josh said, they will find each other and they will often live within Mm. a close vicinity of one another. Even I know here in Wichita, I know exactly where all the South Asians or many are living of of students. And even to to attempt to interact with them in that environment, even maybe to live in apartments in those complexes, uh, I think is because as you have on your, your fifth aspect of sharing with Hindus, Josh, about the idea of the family and the group, uh, so being central to their culture, um, mm-hmm. with, they want to find other Indians uh, and who who think like them, who understand them, and they'll live together uh, in in close proximity often. Yeah, and if you can introduce them to another believer from their same culture, which is quite possible here in an international context, I think that's helpful. I mean, my stories fairly powerful for them and the Lord can use that. But when they hear someone, maybe that was a Brahmin of a different caste or higher caste than them or someone who's believed they're, they're often first surprised. Why, how could you? And then intrigued enough to listen, maybe in a way that they wouldn't so much to me because they, they kind of expect me to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Can you, sorry, James, can you speak to that? James, uh, uh, Josh, excuse me about the group decision-making and, and uh, us sharing individually, but understanding there is a lot more involved than just them as an individual believing. Sure. I mean, if you share the gospel with somebody, I think we as the messenger are thinking about the truths we're presenting and the basic facts and that they need as an individual need to make a decision. They may be asked thinking of something like this, which I promise you, nobody probably listening to the podcast is, who am I going to marry? You think, well, why would that come up? Well, in an arranged marriage and in a system where Hindus look within their caste and kind of their tribe to find people. Yes, even those of you who are going to college with people here, mom and dad are helping make that decision. There may be some, as they would call them, love marriages that they may meet. So they're thinking, if I become a Christian, how is my family like, who am I going to marry? Like, nobody's going to marry me if I'm not a Hindu. Or they may be thinking of, I'm really dependent on my parents for support. And they're not going to like this. If I get baptized and join a church and like, they're going to see that as really shameful. I'm going to embarrass my family. 
all of their friends and everyone that they know is going to know like, man, your kid rejected Hinduism and turned away from that. So they're thinking about social things. They're thinking about long-term implications, maybe persecution or just, man, this doesn't even seem plausible. Like what would this look like? Whereas we may have, because of our just living arrangements, financial arrangements, you might fly off the deep end and do something and you could probably make it in this world. You might suffer. It might be hard. But as you think about like it takes a village to raise a child or it takes a community, they're thinking about those things. So maybe even, hey, why don't you take this story home and and talk to your family about it? Or would you like to meet with a group of believers? Like even if, if they're willing to count the cost, it might mean emphasizing the local church and discipleship and community. And yes, you might lose, but that's why it's so important for like churches to come around people like this, both internationally and domestic here to be the family and the people that they need. Cause the thought of them being alone and making this decision is going to be an impediment for many. There's things on their mind that we may not be aware of to help. Yeah. Thanks. And the best thing we can do is just try to include their family in that essentially with that would that be correct? Yeah. I mean, in, in the international context, it may mean visiting their family, sharing with their family, inviting them to some type of Bible study or some type of event where they're going to hear, you know, if there's somebody maybe who wants to be baptized or join a church or who's converted, I have seen effectively even the pastor go and maybe indirect. We're very direct as a culture, but it may be sending a pastor or someone else to talk with the father or the uncle or the parents to explain like, this is what it would mean. We can help them get married, maybe one thing, or to let them come and see, even if they don't accept, at least be willing to accept the decision and not see it as shameful that their, their child, brother, cousin, whoever made. That's good. Maybe one other thing before we maybe end this section about tactics is I love the story of the Pearl of Great Price. And as we bring people to the gospel, I think it's important for them to see the beauty of the gospel before attacking their idols, which, and, and even calling them to repentance. And we need to call people to repentance. Please hear me say that clearly. Oh, we need to hold up who Jesus is and what are we calling them to mm-hmm. or emphasizing what they have to leave. Let them see that Christ. And when you think about that merchant who went out and saw what was in that field, And that pearl of great price, it was easy to leave everything else because they saw the beauty of who Jesus is. We can do that in our testimony, yes, but we need to be clear about what Jesus did, why it was necessary. We need to get back to like what Jesus did on the cross and how that's different. So again, it's the message of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to draw them. So I would just remind everybody who's sharing, like lift that up, lift the name of Jesus up. Mm them to him and call them to follow Jesus Christ alone and what he's done would, would be a key. Yeah. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Do you want to hit just real quick on the difference of shame versus like a justice? Yeah. Yeah, we can do that. Before you start on that, we know that there's a lot of talk about shame in the counseling realms and things of that nature. And sometimes students particularly kind of just think that we're talking about the same thing. Okay. So, yeah. So maybe you could just clear up what it honor shame means from a missiological perspective, as opposed to counseling perspective. So as you're sharing the, the gospel with, with Hindus in particular, when we talk about brokenness, there, there's really two types of brokenness in sharing the gospel. One is we have broken God's law. So we have a legal problem. And, you know, Romans talks about this as like justification that we have broken God's law. There's a penalty for that, that that has to be covered. And that's good and right. And another faithful way that the Bible talks about that is we have broken our relationship. We have acted shamefully and we have turned away from God. So Hindus in particular and, and really Eastern cultures understand that. And, you know, when you disobey an authority figure, that you would bring dishonor to your father or to your mother, or to your family, or even to your neighborhood by doing things. So when we start a conversation around the gospel, again, this is a starting point to start with, 
the shame aspect or that we have a broken relationship with God that needs to be repaired, that God is our father, that he has created us, that he loves us, that we have rejected him. We have turned from him. He wanted what was best for us. And by turning away from that, we, ha we have done something that's wrong. We have broken a good relationship and there's no way that we can come back into that right relationship unless God did something. God saw the problem. He sent his son and God has reconciled that relationship. So when we think about me, again, this is an entry point. The entry point, broken relationship. What's the problem? A relationship broken. What's the answer? Relationship reconciled through Jesus. Now, we still need to talk about the broken law. Both are faithful ways to talk about the gospel. So all of us, because of our sin, have a legal problem and we have a relational problem. Jesus provides justification for our legal problem and reconciliation for our relational problem. It's more of a, a way to enter and begin the conversation. It's not leaving out parts of the gospel. It's not ignoring key things about scripture. So that may be a helpful starting point, more relational, because Hindus don't necessarily see a holy law that they've broken. They don't probably think they're all that bad. They don't walk around with this heavy weight of guilt that they've not measured up, that they've somehow fallen short of the glory of God. That's not going to be the common experience. In our evangelism, we're thinking almost 30 years back in America, where almost everybody would agree that there's a God, where almost everybody agree with some of the things or many of the things they do is wrong that somehow they deserve some type of punishment and they need help. Well, that's not where a Hindu is at all. So that can't be our starting point necessarily. Yeah. We have to start where they're at. Mm -hmm. That's some really great stuff. It really makes me want to like, just run, run meet some uh, South Asians right now and share with them and see what God does with that. Well, as the Lord works in your heart, maybe just give a couple of things, how you can pray and maybe how students can pray as well that would really be helpful. There's all kinds of great resources, but, but just to give you a couple, one for Hindus to know the true God, that they would be dissatisfied with their gods, that they would somehow see that it's not enough, that they would see that it doesn't answer all the big questions they have and pray for believers. I mean, um, I would take first Thessalonians chapter one It's a wonderful passage. Paul says, Jay, the Thessalonians receive the gospel. Well, with power, much conviction with the Holy Spirit. They turned from idols. They were examples to others. So if you want a, a scripture to guide you in praying for really anybody who's lost and how we hope they would receive the gospel, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Pray the whole families would come together, that new believers would not be alone no matter where they are. Pray for them to be willing to face persecution that's kind of inevitable whether it's just kind of social ostracism, whether it's literally being kicked out of their home and family or being alienated from others to physical or other abuse, and that um, Hindus would see the beauty of the gospel and count the cost, that they would be willing to turn to Jesus no matter what. Excellent. Well, I will definitely be praying that and uh, encourage our listeners to as well. 